I'm David Heitler-Clevens. And I'm Rodney Wittenberg. And this is Music for the New Revolution. I'm your masters of war. Yes, war and peace. Peace and war. Yeah, it's been going on a long, long, long time, right? Yes, it has. And you know, it's interesting. It's like uh, listening, listening to that and also doing some of the research for some of the other shows we're going to do on this subject. This is sort of the reason why we have our show. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I, I, you think about it, like almost all uh, the whole protest song movement uh, in the late 60s was all about the war. I guess the early 60s, it would have been about the uh, civil rights movement. But, mm -hmm. late, you know, and and I guess the other movements kind of, kind of piggybacked off of that. Because yeah, they, yeah. I, I guess yeah. there's not as many uh, women's rights songs, are there? For the oh yeah, there's quite a few. Yeah, lots <laughs> okay. of women's rights songs. Um, but you know, the, I think the other thing that is important to remember is that, um, you know, there's been music related to war for as long as there have been wars, mm -hmm. not always anti-war. I mean, music's right. been used to stir up the troops to battle as well. I yes. mean, marches you know, are martial music, literally. Yes. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I was just teaching about this the other day and, and mm -hmm. played the Ballad of the Green Berets from in the mm -hmm. midst of the anti-war movement. Yeah. And that was a huge hit for Sergeant yeah. Barry Sandler. You know, and it kind of <laughs> gave the, you know, people who were uh, supporting the Vietnam War some kind of cause to you know, point at this idea of the silent majority that really were in support of it. That fact that that song became such a big hit yeah. and, and was a very, you know, rah, rah, you know, yeah. troops kind of thing. Well, I, I think even back then, I think people get supporting the troops or supporting the people who are fighting versus supporting the cause or the reason they're fighting. I think they conflated those two back then. I think there were people who supported the troops, but weren't happy about why we were fighting that war. Yeah, well, I think that's true. Although um, there was more of a of a blaming the troops themselves. I mean, mm -hmm. some of the things that people were very angry at the anti-war movement yeah. for, you know, treating the returning soldiers uh, as the the enemy. You know, yeah. and I think that was wrong. But I also think we went a little too far in the opposite direction of. You know, when we got into this whole support the troops thing in the first Gulf War mm -hmm. and it made it so that even the anti-war movement was really nervous about sort of holding individual soldiers responsible for their actions. And, you know, to me, there's got to be some kind of middle ground between those two positions, because sometimes soldiers do horrible things, uh, massacres, you know, Abu Ghraib and things like that. And then they really do need to be held responsible, I think, mm -hmm. for for their actions. It can't all be about I was just following orders. Right. You know, look where that leads us. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's the birth of our country, the yeah. uh, Boston massacre. 
So you, if you're wondering why we're talking about war, this is our Memorial Day show. Mm -hmm. And uh, we decided to take a look at some contemporary, uh, uh, as we always do, contemporary songs about war uh, and uh, peace. And, and we also, since we found so many songs, <laughs> we will be doing other shows about, about the same subject. And we have a wonderful interview coming up from John McCutcheon. Um, yeah, so this will be episode one of this theme, as as we often do. But this is a big one, so we 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 will have probably many yes. many episodes. Mm -hmm. Not as many as there have been wars, though, probably. Mm -hmm. No. Yeah. But by by <laughs> yeah by more recent by more contemporary, you know, we often define that as being from the '80s to the present, and the '80s are mm -hmm. pretty well represented in mm -hmm. some of the selections that we'll do today. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know, actually. Just personally, mm -hmm. um, the 80s is really when I started to become more involved as an anti-war activist, mm -hmm. both mm -hmm. musically and uh, in terms of, you know, protesting and stuff. Mm -hmm. So um, so I guess that might be partly why a number of the songs that I associate are, are particularly from that era. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I remember uh, walking by the park and seeing the hippies uh, playing their guitars and singing protest songs when I was like seven, like still living in West Philly and uh, walking, you know, with my parents or and, and seeing and going, oh, I want to go over there. And my parents, no, we're not going over there. Those are those hippies. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I was aware of it back then. And uh, I don't know, you know, it's weird for me um, coming from a, a, a um, a military family, which you probably didn't know, but I, I, I'd say that because my grandfather served and my sister also serves and, um, and my dad's two uncles served or mm -hmm. my dad's two brothers, sorry, my uncles. And in, and in each case, it's a very, very, very different experience of service. I mean, my grandfather talks about, but talk to me about loving his time in the military. He was stationed in New York during World War II and before that, and it gave him, um, you know, taught him a skill, gave him a career. He ended up being a, a maintenance or a boiler maintenance per, per guy at Whitman's Chocolates. But he learned all that at the, you know, from serving in the Navy. Mm -hmm. uh, but my dad's two brothers, completely different story, came back from Korea and just completely messed up on drugs and mm. just a mess. Mm -hmm. uh and uh you know so i it's 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 a weird thing for me of being of two minds you know about like what the military can actually do and what it does for a lot of working class poor and people of color and how it is was a way of of being upwardly mobile and sometimes it's people's last opportunity to really make a change and um had the opportunity last year to do a, a, a project with a number of vets and really get to know them. And it was really interesting to see where they fall on the political spectrum too. Mm -hmm. like some, some are very conservative and some are radically left. And, right. uh, but they all uh, have a deep love of this country and wanted, wanted to be of service. Mm -hmm. So that's what we honor on Memorial Day, even as we are playing anti-war songs. Yes, that is right. And, you know, uh, I also, you know, both my grandfathers were in the military during World War II, and um, I don't think either of them were in combat, but they were 
um, that was a uh, it was an interesting time because even people who had been long time anti-war activists in the musical world like Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger signed up during World War Two and they mm-hmm. they sang songs, you know, round round Hitler's grave and things yeah. like that. And the sinking of the Reuben James. And, you know, um, so there was a real different attitude about that war mm-hmm. um, among a lot of people who had been peaceniks um, yeah. and who were again. Yeah, you know, for Korea and Vietnam, et cetera. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting, it is an interesting thing. And, and, um, and, and your points about, you know, like I, I think a lot of times ever since we had the draft in Vietnam, a lot of people have pointed out that we've had a de facto economic draft mm-hmm. uh, because the people who are fighting the wars are people who often don't have other choices. They're, mm-hmm. they're kind of forced into it by economic uh, uh, reasons or, you know, that's the only way to get, uh, a college education paid for or things like that. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's been a way that it's been disproportionately affecting. And, and even when there was a draft, of course, that was true. People, yeah. people were able to get out of it, including mm-hmm. a number of people who we've had as presidents who are <laughs> often the most warmongering presidents are the yeah. ones who were the chicken hawks. Right. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah. Anyway, that's that. Yeah. That's a, we that's haven't a, had a president mm-hmm. that served since George Bush Senior. Mm-hmm. It's the, uh, the, he's the last. I mean, he served in World War Two, but none of the other president Clinton and Obama and Bush Junior. and of course the person who we won't talk about, but uh, <laughs> he who shall not be named at the moment. <laughs> yes, yeah, uh, they all uh, did not serve. Right. Well, and you know, I think it's interesting because I mm-hmm. it often. There are a lot of Democrats who think somehow it's a winning strategy to have somebody who did serve mm-hmm. uh, be a candidate. That doesn't seem to work so well because it doesn't, you know, like Kerry and yeah. et cetera. It never wins over mm-hmm. conservatives. They they even the, for all their flag waving and, mm-hmm. and mi- military supporting, supposedly, you know, they'll always go with a chicken hawk who's a who's a Republican over a decorated veteran who's a Democrat. Uh, yeah. So it just doesn't seem to, to work. But it's, it sort of seems to be like a Democrat, a moderate Democrat's wet dream always is like oh we're going to get a military person in yeah i think it's a a misconception or misunderstanding of what people are responding to i think that i mean someone's a lefty and a military person they are probably i mean i'm i'm going to stereotype here probably but um they probably understand the cost of war and are actually and know what it's like to be on the battlefield and know what they're asking people to walk into Mm -hmm. and and don't, you know, don't necessarily see it as, um, I don't, I, I'm not, I, this is not going to come out right. I was going to say don't see it as heroic, but it's not that it's not heroic. It's, um, it's they're real about it. Right. You know? I think some of the most anti-war people actually have yes. been people who have seen battle because they know what it really means, you know. Right. And, yeah. and as opposed to, I mean, I always think some of the most powerful anti-war messages are often about seeing the people who are making the decisions about the troops mm-hmm. as just like moving players around on a chessboard yeah. uh-huh. and they're not really thinking of the human costs and what this mm-hmm. really means on the ground because they don't have to pay those costs right and so you know the, the the idea you know like 
as much as I can't stand Mel Gibson these days. I mean, that movie Gallipoli, I think, was a very powerful representation of that, where it goes back and forth between the people making the decisions Mm -hmm. and the people on the ground who are dying because of those decisions. And it, you know, I just thought that it came across very, very powerfully. And actually, that's a perfect way of getting into this first song that we have, uh, which is an early song from Suzanne Vega, one of those songs from the 80s. And uh, it's not a historical song, but I think it's a really, really powerful song that Mm -hmm. has all this depth of stuff about um, class and Mm -hmm. uh, age and... Uh, you know, even a sort of a, a little bit of a sense of, of attraction between the two characters, the queen mm-hmm. and the soldier. Um, but it definitely has this idea of, you know, here's this queen who isn't really recognizing uh, what her decisions mean for regular people until she's confronted mm-hmm. with the soldier. And then we're, we're going to go right from that song into... Um, some of our interview with John McCutcheon that you mentioned uh, and where he's talking about his great song, Christmas in the Trenches, about mm-hmm. the Christmas truce during World yeah. War One. Awesome. before and slowly she led him inside he said i've watched your palace up here on the hill and i've wondered who's the woman for whom we all kill but i am leaving tomorrow and you can do what you will only first i am asking you why He said, I see you now, and you are so very young, but I've seen more battles lost than I have battles won, and I've got this intuition, says it's all for your fun, and now will you tell me why? Well, the young queen, she fixed him with an arrogant eye, she said, you won't understand, and you may as well not try. But her face was a child and he thought she would cry But she closed herself up like a fan And she said, I've swallowed a secret burning thread It cuts me inside and often I've bled And he laid his hand on the top of her head And he bowed her down to the ground Tell me how hungry are you, how weak you must 
But she knew how it frightened her And she turned away And would not look at his face again He said, I want to live as an honest man To give all I deserve and to give all I can And to love a young woman who I don't understand Your Highness, your The crown it had fallen And she thought she would break And she stood there Ashamed of the way Her heart ached And she took him to the doorstep And she asked him to wait She would only be a moment Inside Out in the distance Her order was heard And the soldier was killed Still waiting for her word And while the queen Went on strangling in the solitude she preferred. The battle continued on. on the skeletal bones of history. Um, and that was, you know, little by little, I, 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 I learned how to write songs and tell, mostly tell stories and mm -hmm. figure out how to make these things come alive for folks. Mm. It's interesting how that's come up in so many of the interviews that we've done recently, with that the idea of telling stories is really primary to many of the artists that we've interviewed and, um, and, and, and telling people's stories, not necessarily the famous, you know, mm -hmm. but, but, you know, the, the unsung heroes, the, the, the regular people. And I think that's something that you are, you know, particularly adept at and, and particularly well known for, um, and have done such an amazing, you know, body of work of telling those, those stories. Well, I, I kind of feel like I'm, I'm doing a rescue operation on a good story often, whether it be, you know, the 1914 Christmas truce, mm -hmm. which is taught in history classes in the UK. But when I wrote the song back in 1984, it was almost completely unknown mm -hmm. over here. You know, these are stories that may make it into some news feed. You might read it someplace and then you'll never hear of it again. But with a song, you can sing it every night and and the the innate truths are are talked about again well and you, you must seek these kinds of stories out but i know that because you've become known for trying to tell those stories you are probably approached with them in fact i've heard you tell about the genesis of christmas in the trenches which you just alluded to and how that came about maybe you could talk about that a little bit um it was in the spring of 1984, and uh, my record company, Rounder Records, had asked me to do a, um, a Christmas Hammer Dulcimer album. And I suspect that they expected Hark the Herald Angels Sing on the Hammer Dulcimer. And I wasn't interested in doing anything at all like that. And so I had gone and gotten um, 
music from all over the world. And, um, and I was really pleased with what we were going to do. And I was about two weeks from going into the studio and I felt like there was something missing. I was doing a concert at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. And prior to the concert, post sound light checks, that, you know, that 45 minute to an hour period when you're in limbo before the show starts. I was sitting in a backstage dressing room reading a book, as is my habit in backstage dressing rooms. And um, all of a sudden the door explodes open and, and literally swept this old black woman wearing the, uh, pushing the broom. And I could tell immediately she was a, a custodial engineer <laughs> in, the, in the place. And uh, we just started chatting. She was, you know, she didn't expect me to be in there. I didn't expect her to be in there, but we, you know, she was friendly. I, I like people and we just started talking and eventually we started um, telling jokes and um, sort of, I lost track of time. It was, it was that engaging a conversation. And eventually I got the, you know, two minutes um, and I said, okay, I got to go to work now. Uh, and so your turn, give me your best shot. And she told me the story of the Christmas truce of 1914. She prefaced it by saying, my favorite, it ain't no joke. Uh, hadn't got a punchline and it's true. Uh, and I had heard the story of the, the truce before, um, but I think it was in this unexpected moment of, of coming from at a time and from a source, I, I really didn't expect it. And I was in this place where I'm missing something for this album. And as soon as I heard it, I thought, oh my gosh, that needs a song. And um, as my wife once said, it was one of those moments where I would tell her a story. She said, oh my goodness, this sounds just like a John McCutcheon song. And who better to write it? <laughs> uh, and it was, it was one of those songs that is a gift. I mean, every writer who's listening to this uh, will know what I'm talking about. There are some songs you write and others you just simply write down. I've often told my songwriting students that paying attention also means paying attention to that moment when, um, you know, no, you're not going to put it off. No, you have to do it right now. The muse is fickle and she's infrequent. And I often had this image of God going around for years and years, whispering into people's ears, dun, 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 <laughs> and finally somebody will listen. Um, but, uh, so it, I wrote it during the intermission of the concert that night. I did a really short first set because I was really bugged by this story and little couplets would come into my mind and I went back and I actually, I, I'm preparing all, all my papers for the, uh, Center for Southern Folklore at Chapel Hill. And I was going through my original lyrics and I found the original lyrics of, of Christmas in the Trenches and I was... I was very surprised at how little editing happened. Um, so, you know, those stories, 
Yeah, sometimes those stories just come to you. Uh, and you're right, David, there are people who come up to me uh, saying, oh, you know, you know what you ought to write a song about? And every songwriter gets that. And most songwriters hate it. Me, it's like, people are doing my work for me. <laughs> you know, writing the song after all this time, you know, it's work. I don't want to dismiss it, but it's often the most difficult part is, first of all, getting the story. What, what is that story? And secondly, finding the voice. What is, you know, what voice do you want to use? You know, and in this case, it was, my name is Francis Tolliver. Now, is that a real person? No, no, I no. totally, you know, it's interesting. Many years later, I met a fellow by the name of Frank Buckles, who was the last surviving World War I veteran. I met him when he was 107. He died at 110. And um, I sang him the song. And he said, uh, did you do any research on that song? <laughs> no. <laughs> it was a little hard to do research during the first set of a concert. Um, you know, I just, it was, I was compelled to write the story. I made up the guy's name, where he was from. I mean, everything that happened truly happened. Uh, but no, I just needed a voice. I've often found that a first person voice is very compelling. I learned that from Woody Guthrie, you know, take a trip with me to 1913. You know, I'll take you through a door and up a take tall a stair. And man, you are, everybody who hears that line, visualize it's a, it's a movie. They're in the middle of it and then you're gone. You're gone, you know, you know you're in the story. And I guess, you know, I've spent my adulthood sort of unpacking a lot of the inspiration I got from people like Woody and say, oh, I guess I learned to do that from a steady diet of Woody Guthrie songs when I was 14. Yeah. So did the, the veteran of World War I that you talked to when he asked you if you'd done any research, what was his next comment? I was sort of well, curious. Well, you know, there wasn't any gas in 1914. Mm -hmm. I said, you know, duly noted. You gonna change the song? <laughs> Not at this uh, point. I, I, <laughs> the most interesting thing he said to me he said, the biggest thing you get wrong in that song, McCutcheon, is that you act, you make it sound like it only happened once. Uh -huh. And that's, that's the interesting thing, uh, having met with people, especially Stanley Weintraub, who did the most exhaustive historical mm -hmm. writing on this event, was, I think you have this notion, and in the children's picture book I wrote, the illustrator has, you know, like two dozen people out in the field, the trenches were nearly 500 miles long. And according to Weintraub, there were probably about 300,000 men who took part in that. An interesting, an interesting little historical sideline is that one of the German companies that, that refused to participate was led by a young Lieutenant Adolf Hitler. Mm -hmm. So it's been interesting, you know, Songs a lot of times are catalysts. I mean, you write them, you turn them loose like a child. Go out and do your work in the world. I have no idea what's going to happen. And the result is people coming up to me with their grandfather's diaries. Mm -hmm. Or somebody sent me a, a, um, a 
copy of the London Daily Mail from New Year's Day, 1915, which had the first newspaper account. Mm-hmm. This, is, this furniture refinisher found it lining the drawer mm. and said, oh, I know who needs this. Mm-hmm. Two people who said I was in Vietnam and I was separated from my company and I ran into a VC regular out in the jungle and we pointed our guns at one another and realized, well, this doesn't make any sense. Have you got any chocolate? And it's that it's the the bottom line is it's the breaking down of the anonymity that makes war possible, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you know just trying to get inside of the guy's head. How well? How would you feel if you've been through that? How would you look at the person across no man's land? Yeah. Well, and the way that you end it with that part about the walls. Are, have crumbled in our mm-hmm. and we're never more and then the very last bit about the uh on each end of the rifle we're the same those are such powerful ways to bring that all home that that point mm-hmm. well you could you know that's what the great thing about a story you know you can you could write some pedantic thing saying you know war is is you know depends upon anonymity and it's you know it's <laughs> the poor people fighting the rich man's war and blah 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 and people have done that or you can say my name is francis Tolliver. let me tell you my story and you make your own judgments and and that kind of license that kind of generosity uh is is an invitation to find yourself making choices that might surprise you and that's the interesting thing about political music i think um that in a lot of ways having come up in the church i realized that church music and political music are really similar you've got two lines one is in religious music one is praise and the other is proselytizing Mm -hmm. (laughs) political music you've got the what's you know what's almost disparagingly called preaching to the choir i prefer to think of it as a uso show for the troops disparage <laughs> those and the other one is actual political work where you are trying to convince someone you're trying to persuade someone and um you know stories are very disarming yeah yeah. So you mentioned that a lot of people in Europe in particular know the story, but did before your song, mm-hmm. people didn't know it as well here. I'm, I'm curious whether there's a couple things I know of that, you know, use this story in various ways. And I wonder if either of them had found it independent of you or if you knew if any of them had actually found it through your song. One is the... Uh, the video that Paul McCartney did for the song Pipes of Peace. The song doesn't tell the story, but the, I don't know if you've ever seen the video, the video that he made. Yeah, and, and, yeah. and then, you know, it'd be kind of cool if Paul McCartney had gotten the idea from you. And, and the other is the opera Silent Night. Oh, yeah, Night. I was going to mention the opera, yeah. <laughs> or he might have gotten it from his history classes in school. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. More likely. More likely, yeah. yeah. And then there's the film uh, Julie Noel. Yeah, the film, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, which is a really kind of different take. Mm-hmm. on the story. I actually uh, did a presentation with the producer and the director of that film at the United Nations Film Festival mm. a number of years ago. Um, and it was great to meet them, you know, and I 
uh, I hadn't seen the film prior to knowing that I was going to be doing this thing with him, so I figured I ought to, ought to watch it. But the most powerful part of that movie is the very beginning of the film where they have all these children from different countries talking about the people in other countries mm -hmm. and how from a very early age that kind of uh, depersonalization and caricaturization starts and uh, you know that that whole notion of we aren't born to hatred to quote nelson mandela mm -hmm. Uh, you know, we have to be taught. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we can also unteach that too. Right. So it's one of the things that, you know, I think music can be so powerful. Okay. My name is Francis Tolliver. I come from Liverpool. Two years ago, the war was waiting for me after school. To Belgium and to Flanders, to Germany to here. I fought for king and country I loved dear. It was Christmas in the trenches where the frost so bitter hung. The frozen fields of France were still no Christmas song was sung. Our families back in England were toasting us that day. They're brave and glorious lads so far away. I was lying with my messmate on the cold and rocky ground when across the lines of battle came a most peculiar sound. Says I, now listen up, me boys, each soldier strained to hear as one young German voice sang out so clear. Singing bloody well, you know, my partner says to me. Soon one by one each German voice joined in in harmony. The cannons rested silent, the gas clouds rolled no more, as Christmas brought us respite from the war. Finished, and reverent pause was spent. God rest ye merry gentlemen, struck up some lads from Kent. Oh, the next they sang was steely knocked, tis silent night, says I. And into tongues one song filled up that sky. There's someone coming towards us, the frontline sentry cried. All sights were fixed on one lone figure trudging from their side. His truce flag like a Christmas star shone on that plain so bright as he bravely strode unarmed into the night. Then one by one on either side walked into no man's land. With neither gun nor bayonet we met their hand to shared some secret brandy and wished each other well and in a flare-lit soccer game we gave him hell we traded chocolates 
cigarettes and photographs from home. These sons and fathers far away from families of their own. Young Sanders played his squeeze box and they had a violin. This curious and unlikely band of Daylight stole upon us, and France was France once more. With sad farewells, we each began to settle back to war. But the question haunted every heart that lived that wondrous night. Whose family have I fixed within my sights? It was Christmas in the trenches, where the frost so bitter hung. Frozen fields of France were warmed as songs of peace were sung. For the walls they'd kept between us to exact the work of war had been crumbled and were gone forevermore. Francis Tolliver, in Liverpool I dwell. Each Christmas come since World War I, I've learned its lessons well. But the ones who call the shots won't be among the dead and lame. And on each end of the rifle, we're the same. Classic. Yes. <laughs> classic, classic story. Yeah. And a testament to the power of music. Yep. And the power of storytelling, too, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I, I think that's my favorite Christmas song, says the secular Jew. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> in, in June. Almost like, June. Yeah, it has been for a very long time. I, I remember when I first uh, tried to learn that song it was one of the songs that I couldn't get through without just dissolving into tears. And it took mm -hmm. me a number of times trying before I could finally get myself to get through it without, wow. you know, breaking down. But mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's powerful. And it was we we've, we're fortunate, I think, to get John McCutcheon to uh, do that interview with us just recently. Yes. And he's just a wonderful human being and musician. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we have a little bit more of it coming up in a little bit. That's right. We'll hear some more from him. So, yeah. Um, yeah so, I mean, there's there's a lot of really uh, powerful stuff that that's come up, you know, around this issue musically. I mean, so so many people have been moved to write wonderful songs. Um, mm -hmm. And um, you know, you were mentioning to me, Rodney, before we did this, you know, that there's so many great anti-war songs from the 60s obviously a lot of them connected to the vietnam war there's mm -hmm. also some great ones from the 60s that are related to the cold war and the yeah. arms race and things like that mm -hmm. as well um but yeah and and i think we will at some point maybe uh go outside of 
our usual time period and do a special about uh you know 60s anti-war music just because yes. it's so okay. much you know and yeah and there's a lot that people don't know as well you know the mm-hmm. fugs and things like yeah. that you know so yeah. uh-huh. uh it would be fun to do that and, and um, birth of punk rock i mean you were talking earlier how it was the 80s it really was me it was the mid the, the late to mid mid to late 70s when i discovered punk mm-hmm. and that's when i really saw that there could be politics in music and, mm-hmm. and particularly anti-war sentiment in music yeah yeah and a lot of those folks continued doing good anti-war stuff in the 80s too so yeah yeah yeah. um well you know actually the 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 next song we were going to do is something that comes from the 60s and the reason i thought we could uh weasel our way with it into this particular episode is because it's a a recording from the 90s from uh the sisters uh act uh, disappear fear mm-hmm. sonia of disappear fear still is going strong but uh, her sister decided to you know, leave the music business i guess uh but they do this incredible version of phil oak's song is there anybody here and um this is one of those songs i think you know i, I think because of what we were talking about about this changing sensibility about the troops you know supporting mm-hmm. the troops versus you know, being pro or, or anti-war. Um, this is one of those songs I, I, I don't think could be written today. You know, like a, it, it's a much more directed at the soldiers kind of a song, you know, similar to the Buffy St. Marie uh, Universal Soldier, you know, which mm-hmm. says, you know, you really are to blame. I don't, I don't think people, even the most anti-war writers today are, are writing that sort of a thing. No. Uh-uh. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's, it, it may not be popular now, but I still think that there is, a, like I was saying before, a sense that we, we do need to think of ourselves as being responsible for our actions, even if we're, you know, within that military (laughs) umbrella (laughs) we hope i mean that is the thing that we pride uh we like to think about our our military both uh you know that they are principled Mm. and we think of the we always i mean we'd like to think that the enemy is not principled and we are Mm -hmm. um, but that's one of the ways that wars are perpetuated right is by having that division and Mm -hmm. thinking our side is just and their side are evil and yeah yeah Mm -hmm. But as John McCutcheon said so wisely, on each end of the rifle, we're the same. Yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, how about if we get to um, some, some more music then? Yes. And uh, I, I hope you'll enjoy this amazing version by Disappear Fear of uh, Phil Oak's song, Is There Anybody Here? And after that, we'll hear New Order's uh, tragic uh, song with a reveal at the end. Listen carefully to Love Vigilantes. <laughs>
song and i you know i wonder you know it, it to me it's one of those things it's almost like the sixth sense or something you know where uh mm-hmm. you know I, I i would hate to know what was going to happen at the end of that song before the first time i heard it because mm-hmm. it, it it it's more powerful to be surprised mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> no spoilers yeah, well, it was funny. i remember the first one of the first times i heard the song it was at a club and uh, you know you're just dancing to it so you don't realize what it's mm. about 
because it's it's so kind of it's got that dreamy hypnotic 80s kind of dance thing to it too right and so it was actually probably a year later i realized oh wait <laughs> right new order writes songs that have meaning they're not just a dance to oh okay right. um you know, you know back then it was the only place i would hear it was uh-huh. at, at a little at a club in philly called the east side club Mm-hmm. So what were you going to say? Yeah, well, I just was thinking about how many of these songs, there's a moment in a number of them where I get like this chill, down, you know, mm-hmm. on the back of my neck, you know, that the, 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 in the Disappear Fear version of that mm-hmm. Phil Oaks song when they go acapella in the mm-hmm. middle of it on, on, the, on the bridge, I think, and then it's when the... the electric guitar just starts sneaking in underneath them and builds <laughs> yeah. to that the band coming back in it always gets me i mean i've heard that so many times but every time it's like ooh, yeah <laughs> yeah and that's the musical you know the, the the production and the arrangement especially that does that yeah. but uh and in love vigilantes it's when you know when you realize uh that he's actually dead and he doesn't know it um and uh and in the queen and the soldier and in christmas all these songs have moments yeah. for me that that just really Ooh. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's interesting because we've looked at uh, kind of three, four different types of music, even though it's a, the Phil Oaks song is a, a folk song in the way that it's presented. It's not. And right. That's so, not a folky arrangement. <laughs> yeah, it's not a folky arrangement. Yet all of these are really great examples of story songs. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, and, and, and really make their point uh, as, um, you know, by you know, telling a story in the folk tradition. I mean, all, all of these songs could be just played by someone on acoustic guitar and, mm-hmm. and, and at, you know, in a, in a folk setting and they would work as, right. as, uh, as protest songs. Um, you know, I, I was thinking while we were listening, it's interesting that we're playing a lot of protest songs on Memorial Day, which may seem odd to some people that are listening. I don't know if it'll seem odd to everyone, but I think that, um, again, as we were talking about earlier, anyone who has been through war or seen it up close will, I think, understand why we're doing the, we're honoring them in this way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, and I think that we do tend to provide a, uh, you know, alternative kind of view on certain events. So we're likely to, you know, for a holiday like this or July 4th or something, we're going to come at it at a little different angle than the, yeah. the, uh, you know, mainstream way. Yeah, well, you know, so you mentioned that, you know, in a way, a number of the things that we've done have been, ha- have had some continuity. And I think it'll be fun. The next couple songs that we're going to do are going to be from different musical traditions and mm-hmm. also, uh, you know, in a different songwriting sense, too. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and it's come up a little bit in passing, you know, this idea that, you know, so far, a lot of the songs we've done are also about hot wars of, mm-hmm. of actual people fighting battles yeah. against each other, armies against armies. And um, one of the things that's been this overshadowing mushroom cloud, you might even say, <laughs> over our lives for a number of years, you know, all of our lives, Rodney and mine, yeah. uh, <laughs> is this, you know, threat of nuclear war. And I know, you know, when I was a teenager and a young adult, I seriously was you know, daily afraid of, mm-hmm. you know, that I thought Reagan was going to bring about the end of the world, mm-hmm. you know, through a nuclear war. And, and yeah. I think there was good reason to be afraid of that, you know, mm-hmm. when he was joking around about we begin bombing in five minutes and just, mm-hmm. you know, ramping up tensions between us and the, the Soviet bloc and proxy yeah. wars in Central America and Africa mm-hmm. and all over. Anyway, mm-hmm. you know, 
I, I, you know, and I was young, but still, I was I was seriously afraid. And so there were a lot of songs that were very powerful to me that talked about the threat of of nuclear war. Um, and these next couple, one is from the great Sun Ra and his orchestra, mm -hmm. uh, a song I got to hear them do in a church uh, in Ann Arbor, Michigan in the 80s <laughs> called Nuclear War. And then I think my favorite name of a blues band is uh, Big Daddy Kinsey and the Kinsey Report. <laughs> and they, you know, blues is not known for like super political stuff. I mean, there's J.B. Lenoir who had mm -hmm. that great Eisenhower blues in the 50s. Yeah. But, you know, it's not that not the most political of genres, yeah. but uh well, but, I think blues. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I, no, you I'm, could I'm say I'm, I'm always arbitrary. You say something, I always find. I go, but I go ahead. No, I think saying. there's definitely exceptions, but I'm just saying overall, like the, yeah. the majority of of. I mean, unless you're saying like the fact that blues are often about a complaint. You know, that that, that, <laughs> yeah. that that could be seen as political. But if the complaint is, you know, my, my woman left me, yeah. I'm not sure that's particularly political. That's no, but I think yeah. I think the the uh, I do think that blues is political with a small p. I think the the the, the make the, the making of it, how it's made, the people who make it, and 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 the, um, I'm talking about going back to the 40s, 50s, 60s. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Early sixties. <laughs> okay, that's a very uh, yeah, good point. I yeah. I will take that. I I, 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 I think that, that yeah. the uh, yeah the, the like the making of a blues song back then would have been a political act. And then of course sure. I, you know there's there's uh, the whole lead belly thing, which is just uh, right. you know like I think anybody who decides to write a song telling the story about the, the, the human condition, mm -hmm. it can't help but be political. If you're going to be honest and tell a true story about the human condition, what people are going through in, in a certain situation or time, it's, you know, it's like Shakespeare. It's, it's going to be political in some way. Okay. But, I, uh, I, I think you're right about that. So I guess what I should say to be, to be more clear and maybe this, this will work, but is, um, Blues lyrics are not usually overtly yes political okay. in a in a yeah. in a direct like anti-war yeah. or mm -hmm. pro-labor kind of a you know yeah. sort of thing. But mm -hmm. Big Daddy Kinsey is an exception. He had at least on this album in the in the in the eighties a couple songs uh, on there: the Bad Situation uh, song and this mm -hmm. one, the Nuclear War Blues. But we'll hear Sun Ra first, and then Big Daddy Kinsey yeah. and the Kinsey Report. Thank you. 
Mississippi. Let's go out and have a ball. It might work while I'm smoking, baby. Walk on out of here with our hair tied. Hope for the best. That was the Nuclear War Blues, Big Daddy Kinsey and the Kinsey Report. And before and that, Sun Ra. Had, <laughs> yeah, Sun Ra with uh, Nuclear War Live. Yeah. <laughs> it took me a while to find that. After I remembered it. It was, I think, the most memorable part of a very memorable concert that I saw. Where <laughs> uh-huh. People were running up and down the aisles, you know, very uh, church meets LSD. Yeah. Like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's only a guy from Philadelphia could be uh, could take big band era kind of entertainment and then make it I don't know flip it on its turn it around and turn it into like a wild acid trip but then right. then also I mean the beginning of Afrofuturism I mean it's amazing yeah yeah <laughs> so you're saying he's from Philadelphia not Saturn. Yeah, <laughs> I think there's a part of Philly that is Saturn. It's a porthole somewhere. I think it's in West Philly near Clark Park or something. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> that has the ring of truth to yeah. it. Yes. yes. I think it's another porthole in Germantown somewhere. But I don't know where that one is. Mm. And for all of you people who aren't from Philly, when you come here, you will, you will have to see these places I'm talking about yeah. to, to know. So, yeah, interesting takes, and, uh, you know, we like to be eclectic on this uh, podcast, so it's fun to have things from many traditions and and uh, and, and and different approaches to topics, too, mm-hmm. so, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's interesting, too, how, uh, you know, again, at each one of these songs, uh, from a songwriting standpoint, just takes a different sort of point of view and a different way of looking at the same the same subject which is um it, 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 it and i think that get, allows the uh, uh hopefully we're presenting a uh, a uh, a wide view of the subject you know mm-hmm. like a different you know as we as we look to the people who serve there's lots of different ways of thinking about those people uh today on memorial day as they're listening to these uh protest songs right right well, you know, uh, in the segment of the John McCutcheon interview that we played, there was a little bit touching on this idea of looking through the lens of class mm-hmm. and thinking about, you know, and, and there's an old Phil Oak song also that had that chorus. Uh, actually, originally it was, it's always the old who send us to war, mm-hmm. always the young who die. But later he changed it to, it's always the rich who send us into war, yeah. always the poor who die. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe as he got older, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And... Uh, uh that that was you know resonating with me with some of the things that uh, John McCutcheon was saying and um and this next song by Steve Earle Rich Man's War really is is exploring that particular idea mm-hmm. um and this is another one of those songs that does a great twist at the end actually the next couple songs cuz we're going to go from that into a little bit more of John McCutcheon's interview mm-hmm. talking about his song Not in My Name and both of these songs are post um uh, 9-11 songs and they both have a little shift in the la- uh, for the last verse of perspective that's I think what 
partly makes each of these songs particularly powerful. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So let's take a listen. Yeah. Kim and John out because you had no place to go. ask you john about another uh yeah. song related to uh issues of war and peace that you wrote that i think is wonderful which is um not in my name mm -hmm. yeah i wonder if you could speak i really like to that song. one yeah um that was the byproduct of a songwriting workshop i was doing um in north carolina and it was um 
just before September 11th. Uh, and I, one of the things I was talking to the, the workshop participants was about the power of a repeated line. Um, it's something that rock and roll does, uh, but a lot of traditional music does as well. And, uh, and my best buddy of many, many years, Sai Khan, does that a lot in his songs. You know, I, I'm gonna go to work on Monday one more time. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna go to work on Monday, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and so I said, okay, here's, I'm gonna give you a line and I want you to go off and write a song and this is the chorus. And one of my, and I did this two or three times and one of them was not in my name. And I, I had people pair up and um, my usual uh, pattern is to send them off and give them a five minutes to sort of get used to one another. Now go check in and everybody I went to said, no, no, get away, we're fine, we're fine. And I'd given them an hour, which is a ridiculous amount of time, you know. Um, and so I was sitting by myself and I thought, oh, okay, well, maybe I ought to do my own lesson. And I wrote the two first verses and I didn't know where to go with the third and then September 11th happened. And it was uh, prime for rewriting the song and adding the third verse. And To me, what I wanted to do was surprise people with the third verse. Um, and I've done this at bluegrass festivals. Because um, I play for everybody, you know. To some people, I'm the hammer dulcimer guy. To other guys, I'm, you know, I raise my kids on your albums. Mm -hmm. um, and to others, you know, we sing No Mas No More at the America Watch stuff. Mm -hmm. So. People from many walks of life and experiences are coming together at my shows. And so I decided to do this. And it was the third verse that really got the bluegrass crowd on their feet. Uh, just in a positive way. Yeah, in a positive way. <laughs> Good. Yes. And I, I was, you know, it was just like, these people know me. I've played here every year for years and years. They know me. I'm going to. You know, I'm gonna take a risk and do this song because I think I think it could resonate with them. And the whole notion of using God as you know as an excuse for war. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I think the jury is still out whether organized religion is a good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> but it's been misused in mm -hmm. in so many ways mm -hmm. that um, and and especially post 9-11, people realize. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's very powerful that shift that that when you realize that the perspective has shifted and the third verse, you know, it, it mm -hmm. feels like it's from the perspective of, you know, God, it, that that is a very uh, effective, powerful mm -hmm. device and, you know, reinterprets the not in my name phrase. So, yeah. Well, that's the that was the thing I was telling them um, in this is that inform the chorus and change the meaning of the chorus with every verse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was just part of the exercise and yeah. this happened to come out. That's pretty, that's yeah. pretty awesome. See the plane in the distance 
See the flame in the sky See the young ones running for cover The old ones wondering why They tell us that the world is a dangerous place We live in a terrible time But in Hiroshima, New York, or in Baghdad It's the innocent to die for the crime Not in my name Not in my name Not in my name Not in my name Witnesses watch through the window Their hearts locked in horror and pain At the man lying strapped to a gurney As the poison is pumped through his veins And I'm wondering who are the prisoners Who holds the lock and the key Who has the power over life, over death When will we finally be free? Not in my name Not in my name
You've been listening to Music for the New Revolution. I'm Rodney Wittenberg. I'm David Heitler-Clevens. Music for the New Revolution is produced at Melody Vision Recording Studios in Plymouth Meeting, Pennsylvania. Music for the New Revolution is written and produced by David Heitler-Clevens and Rodney Wittenberg. And edited and co-produced by Ben Flax. You can find us at musicforthenewrevolution.com or MFTNR. Like us on Facebook and follow our Spotify playlist. And our podcasts can be found on SoundCloud and iTunes. And you can also be a patron, a supporter of our podcast on Patreon. This is Music, Music for, for the, the New, New Revolution. Revolution. For a pop of pill culture, drug companies circling like a vulture. Amaraki babies with the G.I. Joe father. Ten years from now, is anybody?